ago, you know, we were getting ready for Kenya. We'd really been praying about this trip because we we knew we were going to western Kenya. We had blessings, we had challenges. And I was wondering whether or not to take Tiffany with me on this trip, but I'm glad uh that we we did. We had in the beginning three crusades that we had prepared for. We had to change one uh, right at the last minute because of some political instability along the coast. We wanted to go over near Mombasa and do a big meeting, but we had to change that right at the last minute. So we went to western Kenya, and that's where we uh, were going to set up, right there on the Kenya-Uganda border. So after we did 24 hours in the airport and flying and everything, we got there, I think, Tuesday night, 10.30 p.m., cleared customs, made it to the airport after midnight. So it was until Wednesday morning. Got the report from the bishop of everything we were going to do. Asked about some fellow ministers, what had been going on in, in their world and in their lives. And finally, we laid down to uh, go to sleep. Tiffany slept like a baby. I never got to sleep at all. There was a mosquito in there. Those mosquitoes in Nairobi, they, they love foreigners, you know, and they, 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 they are very aggressive. They just come after you. So, uh, that next morning we got up and we had a 12 hour drive from Nairobi to the Kenya Ugandan border. And when I say we drove all the way to the border, I mean within a quarter of a mile of the border, uh, 50 years ago where we were at in the little village of Kimalili, it actually was Uganda. So in that area, in that little village, Kimalili, we went to a guest house, and that's where we were supposed to stay for the next three nights for this large crusade there. Uh, we had planned it with the Assemblies of God. Several presbyters and bishops over numerous churches were going to get all these folks together. So we have thousands of people coming out to meet for this meeting and uh, we, we knew it was just going to be a powerful thing. But when we got there, we found out that the meetings uh, had been canceled. They didn't tell us as we were on the road driving there. We discovered this when we got there. Uh, the previous evening, uh, right about the time Tiffany and I laid down and went to sleep, about 3 a.m., our host pastor was assassinated. Uh, he and his wife were in bed. They heard some noise outside. Wife woke him up. He went to check, opened up the front door, stepped outside. They shot him dead, left his body there on the front step. And that same night, they killed seven other members of his church. So the investigation is going on to figure out who exactly was behind this. The wife did recognize one of the assailants. But you can imagine what we felt like when we got there and we heard this because all of the planning, all of the advertisement, they had sent the word out as we were coming to tell them, the meeting is off. We didn't even know this yet, but people still showed up. And when I got there and, and heard all of this, I immediately began to think, okay, Bishop Karani, he travels all across the nation. I know he's had threats against his life plenty of times, but he said this is the first time that's ever happened. And I said, I know they were advertising that, that I was coming to preach with them because we put a lot of money in towards uh, this meeting. However, it still worked out and turned out to be a uh, a blessing. The the guest house where we were staying when we when we got there, this this region very, very poor. The Assemblies of God Bishop has 255 or so churches under his care, 
but there, even though he has the largest section of churches in the country, he has the poorest district in the country. We knew it when we saw him, and um, we walked into that guest house and um, walked into the big sitting room they had open for us, and I had my wife with me, and I thought to myself, okay, I wonder if I should have left that little gal back in the States. I went up to go check on our rooms, and we got up on that next floor, and we're coming down that hallway, and I see swallows' nests all across the tops of the walls because folks were so poor they didn't have any windows in the window pane, and bird dung on the floor. So I'm walking. I I had gone up on my own with one of the other uh, Kenyans, and I walked through the hallway. I looked at this. I said, Mama's not going to like this here. You know, she's not going to like this here. And then I walked into that room, and I said, oh, my, this is going to be interesting. So I went back down, and and they were asking, what do you think? I said, oh, this, I mean, accommodations are nice. I said, this is going to be great for us. But I didn't want to be with Tiffany when she walked in that room, so I just let her go on up there, led <laughs> by them people. I came in a few moments later, and she just turned around and gave me one of them looks, and and she said, now you know why I pack everything that I pack. And, I mean, she went to scrubbing and cleaning and fixed that little place up. And uh, so we spent the night there. Something beautiful did take place, even though we couldn't have the meeting. The night before, when we first arrived and we were sitting with Bishop, I asked about a friend of mine named Bishop John, who pastors right on the Ugandan border. He had been after us for years to come and preach a meeting in his area. And apparently... Uh, even though he founded the church that he had pastored for 34 years, because he was of a different tribe, his church kicked him out of the pastorate and out of the pulpit. So a church he established, a parsonage he and his family built, a large congregation of hundreds of people he had built up. Since everything's tribalism, just like that, they got rid of him, kicked him out, won't even allow him back on the property. Tribalism is so bad that they kicked him out of the city. He had to sneak into the city on a bicycle at night to try to get in there to where he formerly resided. Well, before we went to Kenya, I was preaching in California three weeks before we went to Kenya. He lost his church four weeks before we went to Kenya. But three weeks before we went to Kenya, I was preaching, and a lady came up to me after the service, and she said, Brother Dare, I was listening to you preach, and she said, Do you remember that story that you tell about you going to South America from Jerusalem and how God led you and guided you? I said, Yes, I remember that. She said, While you were up there preaching tonight, I, I had a vision of, of somebody over there in Kenya that, that was in trouble and was praying for money, and it was a man, and she said, I have an offering that I want you to take and give to whoever that is when you come across them. And so she went and handed me five crisp $100 bills and said, give that to the person. So sure enough, I had that, and and I pulled Bishop John aside, because he's about 60 years of age, and I told him that story, and I mean, his eyes just watered, because here you are, 60 years of age, you've got a wife, all your kids are adults, you spent your life pouring yourself into a ministry, and just like that, they kicked you out. Now, the average person over there lives on less than $30 a month. I've told you that before. So when we put $500 in his hands, 
I mean, that's like giving a man a, a, a salary upwards of a year or so. But he was so excited about that, and we were glad we could be there with him. We went to sleep. The next day we got up, we drove eight hours back to the center of uh, Kenya to Nyeri. And uh, there we started in our other mini crusade. We were planting a brand new church in a little village called Mukarara, and we gave money uh, towards that. And so I preached there uh, Thursday night or Friday night, Saturday night and Sunday night. And folks, I'm, I'm telling you, the people lined the streets. They sat along the roadsides, out in the dirt roads, came outside their shops and just sat outside the shops and people under the tent and people just listening as the word of God was preached. I think I may have sent a few of you a text that might have got through, but this was a, a village where there's a lot of ancestral worship, a lot of superstition. We got up and preached the gospel in a very strong way, outdoors, and we praise the Lord for the people that came to Christ. The second night I preached, we were sitting up under the tent. They were introducing me. Bishop Karani was exhorting the people. And a man came and sat down next to Tiffany on the right-hand side, reeking with alcohol. I couldn't smell it then. But 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 I knew something was a little bit different because Tiffany had all of her belongings over here. And I watched as she clutched them a little bit tighter when that man came over there and sat down next to her. And within a few moments... He just walked up to the front, and here he was asking, could he become a Christian? Right there in the outdoors. We were all just praising God. I then preached the message on Philip going into Samaria, preaching against witchcraft and the sorcerer coming to know the Lord, people being baptized. I dealt with how the new pastor we were putting in that church there, he was like the modern Philip coming to a place filled with sorcery. And I said, Mukarara is like the ancient type, the modern type of the ancient Samaria. When it's all over, people had given their hearts to the Lord. Bishop Karani had uh, asked the people, uh, he, could they meet me? Because he wanted me to be introduced to them before he took them to meet their new pastor. The way you start a church over there in that world is you just go over there and you have a big open-air meeting, and then whoever gets saved, that's your congregation. You don't start with a nucleus of a couple of families. It's just the first ones become a Christian. That's how you do it. Uh, they went throughout the uh, community asking some of the people what they thought of the message. And the folks were saying it really, really touched their heart. That final service there, we had preached outdoors and it started to rain. People were all over the place. Folks from the church that Sunday morning had come. So we had hundreds, hundreds of people out there. And again, they're sitting along the road, sitting in the bushes. It's raining. I'm standing under the awning. I've got to preach. And I'm thinking to myself, if these folks can stand out here in this rain, I can do it too. So I stepped out there with my microphone, began to preach, praying the whole time, God, don't let me be electrocuted out here trying to tell these folks about Jesus. And, and I mean, the Lord just ministered. I mean, it was a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful time. That Sunday morning in the church, Bishop Karani has about 700 people or so in his uh, church. And so we had two great services. Those people came in that second service, came forward, just like Acts chapter 2, wanting to be filled with the Holy Spirit one by one. We're laying hands on folks, just watching the power of God minister to people as they're crying. And the Lord was filling people with the Spirit of the Lord. Monday morning had to go speak at a Pentecostal Ministers Alliance meeting. We had, I don't know, 25 
30 ministers that were there. The chairman was Bishop Karani. Second chairman was uh, the general secretary of the International Foursquare Church Fall of Kenya. Uh, I had to talk to them about restoring the message of Pentecost, preaching spirit-filled life. I talked to them about America, how the churches have degenerated, how people have turned uh, from preaching truth. And very often, a number of our denominations have shied away from the power of the Holy Spirit, not even wanting to mention it at all. And uh, when it was over... At General Secretary of the Foursquare Church and then Bishop Karani, they, they all wanted to extend an invitation for me to come back next year, preach a great citywide crusade there in the Eddy. All of these bishops and pastors probably represent, I would presume, maybe over 200 churches or more in that area. So we're just expecting sometime next spring or early summer to go back and preach a, a four or five day meeting, three services a day. I'll probably get in there again on the Tuesday night, start on Wednesday, come back on that following Monday. But uh, we also had an opportunity to go out in a rural area and visit some pastors we hadn't seen in a couple of years. One young pastor, a Simmons of God preacher, we'd given him $1,000 a couple of years before to help with his church. Oh, you ought to see how that thing is coming along. Just, oh, see those workers in there just working on all the masonry stuff, putting everything together left another offering with him, and went to visit a second church where I had preached a Saturday re- revival meeting, a bunch of different sessions I had all day, and to see how that church had come along. In that world over there, we've done 25 uh, churches in the past several years. we put thousands of dollars into those folks over there in Kenya. To give you another illustration of how poor they, they are, the guest house where we were staying in the Eddy, I happened to ask the cook. I said, I'm just curious about how much do you make monthly working in a place like this? Beautiful facility. The room I had Tiffany in, uh, we had a big bedroom, had a outdoor parlor. You just go sit outside, got a cur- curtain that goes around you, but there's a beautiful breeze up in the mountains. There's a just about a year-round temperature of about 74 degrees or so. Just beautiful, absolutely gorgeous. And the nice thing about it, not a whole lot of mosquitoes. Oh, it's just wonderful. But with it open like that, you get all of the Kenyan wildlife. So one night we went to sleep. I happened to hit the little light because I always like to look at the, the bright walls and every now and then just try to see if there's anything on it, any kind of bug or anything. And so I hit that light, I looked up, and there I saw a lizard. You know, kind of like what you see in the Geico commercials. One of those geckos, but it's translucent, so you could see the blood going through its body. And it's up there on that wall on the left-hand side there. And so I I rolled over, Tiffany's half-sleep, you know. She's tired, it's been a long day. I said, honey, I said, you're probably going to hear me moving around, making a whole lot of noise, so don't pay no attention to that at all. And, you know, eyes still closed, half sleep. She said, well, what's the problem? I said, well, I said, just, I said, there's a lizard. I said, there's a lizard on the wall over there. She said, well, well, where is it at? I said, just, just above your head, looking down at you. I'm telling you, she jumped out of that bed from almost a dead sleep. <laughs> she was standing on the opposite side of, of, of that room until, until I destroyed that thing. That's, that's exactly what we did. 
But but going back to what I said, I had asked that cook, I said, how much do people make working in a facility like this? She said, well, the head cook makes 1,500 shillings a month. She said, I make 1,200 shillings a month. She said, the housekeepers make 1,000 shillings a month. Now, 1,000 shillings is 10 American dollars. Okay? You can imagine how happy these folks were as we were leaving and we were tipping them. Thanking them for what they had did. Washing my clothes, taking care of the room. We, we, we tipped them. I'm sure them folks were saying, please get back here as soon as you can, you know. But I've always felt when you're in any kind of hotel or place or something like that, if the people take care of you, make sure you take care of them. You know, just be a blessing to them. That's a, a wonderful thing. So thank you for all your giving. So again, we sold thousands of dollars into these people. And uh, making sure they have the resources to do what they are able to do. So praise God. Let's go to John chapter 3. One more time. Just so you can get the blood circulating, let's stand up one more time. John chapter 3, one of the most popular verses in the Bible. John 3 verse 16. Let's read it together. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Father, thank you for this word tonight. Minister to us as we briefly touch on these scriptures in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Briefly, let me talk to you about the immensity of God's love. I think when we look at this verse, we know that John has been telling us throughout this book how wonderful God is, how beautiful God is, how magnificent God is. And he describes God in such a way that we'll understand that God is without a peer. I don't want to say he's greatest of gods because there are no gods but him, but certainly he's unique. Nobody like him at all. Anybody that has a God, that has a son, that sacrifices his life, I think that's a that's someone worth worshiping. The word God itself is generic. Muslims talk about God. They describe him in Arabic as Allah, but their God doesn't have a son. Hindus use the word God generically, but their God is different than the God we're talking about here in Scripture. When John speaks of God. He's talking about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's speaking of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God so loved the world. So God is the greatest God because he's the only God. But then when it speaks of how he loved, he so loved. He loved in this manner. That means he's the greatest lover. The greatest example he gives. Most of us like to believe that we do love people. But can you say that you love people like God loves people? That's the key. Can you say that your love is boundless, that it just goes on and on and on? Most of us, our love runs out at the point our emotions change towards someone. You have good friends, best friends, people that are close to you. But the moment they tell a secret that you wanted to keep private, the moment they say something that you don't like, then your love becomes something similar to this. I love you, but don't cross me. Once they cross you, then... We realize how you love, the manner in which you love. But the scripture says here in verse 16 that God so loved. That means pay attention to the example and the demonstration of how he set forth his affection. The scripture says he so loved the world. That's the greatest object of his affection. 
more than 7 billion people on this planet. There are more than 200 nations. I have no idea how many tribes there are on this planet, but I can tell you one thing. God loves everybody equally and the same. His love reaches out to everybody. It reaches out to the one who lives in the jungles of Brazil, just like it does to the one who lives in the jungles of Papua New Guinea. It works for the one that lives here in Nebraska, just like it does for the one that lives in Central Asia and Kazakhstan. God so loved their world, your world, my world. That doesn't change. When a man or woman is introduced to that and the love of God is able to invade their world, it's at that point they come to realize that there's someone greater than them. There's a power that's able to change them, and love is transformative. Love is the one thing that will cause you to be able to cause people to do things they wouldn't do under ordinary circumstances. You can get a lot of people to do things they wouldn't regularly do just by being nice to them. The Bible says a soft answer turns away wrath. God so loved the world. And it's the people in this world that he's thinking about. Christ came down here to die. He didn't come down here to die for animals. He didn't come down here to die for vegetation. He came to die for you. He came to die for me. But Then the scripture says that he gave. So God, of course, is the greatest giver. And you can't beat God giving. We all like to give and we all do give. It's because of how God blesses us. It makes it possible for us to distribute our gifts and our blessings to other people. And we want God to bless us in such degree that our cup overflows. Because that's what you want to give. You want to give out of your overflow to people. You want to bless people with the excess of what you have rather than having to give out of all that exists within your cup. But the overflow, you want that to be able to flow towards people. And God wants us to be a river, not a lake. So God wants it to flow through us, but he doesn't want us to be a lake where it's all dammed up and it just has to come and just stay right there within those quarters. So since God is the greatest giver, he teaches us to do the exact same thing. Think about that. But then if he's the greatest giver, then naturally there has to be a great Great gift. And that's what he provides. I've never met anybody that didn't like gifts. If you don't like gifts, we'll pray for you after the service. But most people do like gifts. But I guess here's a question. Have you ever received a gift that you didn't want? Sometimes people do that. Yeah. I had a friend one time. He's trying to help celebrate a spouse or somebody's birthday. you know, wanting to be somewhat of a smart aleck when it came time to bless the spouse with a gift, he turns around and buys his wife a gun. Can you imagine? Wife decides she's got a way to get back at him. So when it came time to bless him with a gift and give him something, bought him some craft stuff. How excited do you think he was about that? I think sometimes we can provide gifts that we may not be as excited about as... uh other people, but nevertheless, God himself, he doesn't offer you anything that you wouldn't want. Think about that. Isn't that a great God? God so loved the world that he gave. He's the greatest giver. He provides the greatest gift. I don't know if I've told you. There was a couple one time, seminary professor and his wife. They were traveling through Gatlinburg, Tennessee, stopped at a restaurant to have a meal. They walked in, sat down. 
As they were sitting at the table with one another, they noticed there's an elderly white-haired gentleman going around from table to table shaking hands with people. And that seminary professor, he thought to himself, well, he said to his wife, he said, I hope that man doesn't come over here and pester us like he's bothering all these other people. Sure enough, I mean, you know, visitors in town. And that, that elderly gentleman, he walked right over there and said, good to have you folks with us. He said, where are you from? They said, Oklahoma. He said to the man, what do you do? He said, I'm a seminary professor. That man said, oh, you teach preachers? He said, yes. He said, oh, I've got a good story for you. And with that, he grabbed the chair, pulled it right up to the table. And that seminary professor, he kind of groaned and thought to himself, that's just what I need, another preacher's story. And that man proceeded to tell him, he said, just out that window over there, you can see that mountain. He said, at the foot of the base of that mountain, a little boy was born to an unwed mother never knew who his father was but he said when the boy grew up the problem was everybody knew the circumstances of his birth and so they would ask him over and over again wherever he went who's your daddy mocking him who's your daddy said the young boy was hurt by the question in school he'd hide at recess didn't want to go outside stayed away from the grocery stores and stuff like that but he said he did go to church but he always went late and slipped out early because even the people in church would ask him, who's, who's your daddy? But he said one Sunday they had a new minister who had been installed there in that church. And he said that, that preacher had noticed that that young man would come in late, slip out early. So that preacher gave the benediction, headed down the aisle as quick as he could, catch that young man. And he did before he could get out. And when he, he, he introduced himself to the young man, he asked him, said, who, who do you belong to? Who are your parents? Who's your father? Then the people in the congregation standing around just listening, waiting, see how he's going to respond. But that pastor was sensitive and discerning. And when he realized what was going on, he put his hand on that boy's shoulder and said, oh, I I know who you belong to. I see the family resemblance. You're a child of God. He said, go on out there and claim your inheritance. It belongs to you. Change that boy's life. And then whenever anybody asked him about who his father was, that's exactly what he would say. He said, I'm a child of God. And and then with that, that elderly gentleman said to the couple, isn't that a great story? They said, yes, that is a good story. And that old man got up and walked away. And just when he was walking away, he turned around and he said to the couple, he said, you know, had that preacher not said that to that young boy, said, I don't know what my life would have become. That's what he said. Then walked off. And so the, the couple, that waitress came over there and was taking that order and everything like that. And, and they said to the waitress, do you, would you happen to know who that, that white haired gentleman was that was going around from table to table talking to people? They said, oh yes, everybody knows him. That's Ben Hooper. He's the former governor of Tennessee. Think about that. Young man's life was changed because somebody gave him the greatest gift you could give anybody and that's to let him know he's a child of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Here's the greatest sacrifice. Think about what was given. Think about what Jesus himself has given up when he died on that cross for you. Would you be willing to give your child? Would you have been willing to give your own life for somebody? That's exactly what Jesus did. He sacrificed himself. Most parents would not want to give their own child. As a sacrifice, except in those moments when they're angry with them. But typically, 
They don't want to sacrifice their own kid. But here we learn that all across the earth, people have given their life in the service of the gospel because of their love for the Lord Jesus Christ. How many people have traveled America in uh, motorhomes, cars and vans, preached the gospel because of what Jesus sacrificed? They've raised their kids in a motorhome or in a converted bus to go preach revivals and tell folks about Jesus. And they don't think too much about it because they realize the burden in their heart comes from them because of the sacrifice Christ made. So no sacrifice is too much. Think of the sacrifices you've made, the things God has done for you. But still, you couldn't complain about having given God too much because you haven't had to give your life. Some of you probably heard of General William Booth. He was a man, I forget what group he was a part of, might have been a Methodist church. But he couldn't get the group that he was with to go into the parts of England and London where the poor people were, the prostitutes and gamblers, to minister to them. So he took upon himself to do it. That's how he gave his life. And he reached thousands and thousands of people. Well, he died, I think he was in his 80s. But the same day he died, a famous actress over there in Europe, died they say when that actress passed away they went through her belongings and she left over 250 designer dresses and apparel left over 200 pairs of very expensive shoes and a large fund of money she passed away say they went through the belongings of general william booth and all there were were some old shoes that had been resold twice Two old Bibles that had been worn out from use. A uniform that he wore in that ministry that he had. And just a handful of clothes that were in that closet. But he left behind the entire Salvation Army. Salvation Army. Most of us, when we think of Salvation Army today, we think of somebody standing outside a Walmart somewhere jingling the bell at Christmas time begging for money. Because that's usually what you see. But a hundred years ago, these were people that would march into town and they would be in rank and file and they would have musicians and they would be making all kinds of noise and singing and praising the Lord. And once they entered into town and got everybody's attention, then one of the preachers would then stand up and preach the gospel to everybody that listened. You don't see a lot of that today. It's a totally different organization now. But why did General Booth sacrifice his life, not to minister to the wealthy, but to the poorest of poor? Poor people called them poor. That's who he tried to reach. Because he understood that no sacrifice that he was making was greater than the sacrifice that Jesus Christ had made. That was the greatest sacrifice. So what he gave, in comparison to what we give, it doesn't really matter. And that's why Jesus could say to people, Except you hate your mom, your dad, your brother, and your sister. You can't follow after me. He said, if you put your hand to the gospel plow and you're looking backwards, he said, you're not qualified for this. When people say to him, I, I want to follow you, Lord, but mama's getting old. And in this culture, family is important. We have to be there for family. The Lord says, let the dead bury the dead. I remember A.N. Trotter telling a story one time. He said there was a lady in his church wanted to be a preacher. And she had the call of God on her life. And, and he, and some opportunities were coming up for her to minister. And so he, he said to her, he said, look, Easter is coming up. I'd love for you to minister Easter morning. 
bring the word of God to the people in the church and 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 they we, we need some help. And that, that, that lady said to him, Brother Trout, you're not going to ask me to minister on Easter, are you? I have to go to my family's house. We're having family dinner. You're not going to ask me to miss family dinner with, with my mom and my dad and my brothers and sisters to minister here on Easter. And she, and he said to her, no, darling, I'm not going to ask you to sacrifice yourself to miss an Easter dinner with your family. He never asked her to preach again. Because anybody that can't see the importance of what it is to deliver the word of God and at the same time know there are plenty of other Easter times and moments you can be together. They don't understand the sacrifice that Jesus Christ has made. But let me hasten on here. It said, whosoever believes, whosoever, little four-syllable word, that there is the greatest opportunity. Anybody can become a believer. The person you may believe is the worst wretch in society can become a Christian. I'm telling you, for Hitler to live on this planet was for the devil to wear a pair of pants. But if that man would have repented of his sins, even he could have made it into the kingdom of God. Whosoever means you, whosoever means me, whosoever means us, whosoever means them, whosoever believes. Greatest faith, greatest confidence. Not faith to believe for money. Not faith to believe for healing. We believe in a lot of things. You hear people say, I believe in my kids. I believe in my spouse. Principal might say something. Say, no, I believe my child. My child wouldn't lie. So we believe a lot of things. But when you put your faith in Christ, that's the greatest kind of faith anybody ever can exhibit on this planet. Whosoever believes. And it's a verb. That means it's an action. It's something you must do. Now, if you're obliged to do it, God gives you the ability to do it. If I must be saved, I may be saved. God doesn't command you to do anything without providing the capability for you to be able to accomplish the task that he wants you to do. Whosoever believes in him, that's what he says, they won't perish. So there in that sentence, they will not perish. You have that greatest peril. Now think of this. When people die, they go up or do they go down? Depends on the decisions they made in life. All of us today are products of decisions we made yesterday, and whatever our future is going to be, it'll be products of decisions that we made today. That's just the way life works. I can't do anything about that. Every day is a valley of de- a valley of decision day for you, and you've got to make decisions, and you've got to walk right into the consequences of your decisions. That's not a law I created. That's just a principle of existence. But when we talk about peril, and dangers, sometimes we create them on our own. Verse 18 says here, he that believes on him is not condemned, but he that doesn't believe is condemned already. Can you imagine that the greater mass of people in this world are living with condemnation every day? A sentence of doom is destined for their eternity and they have no idea that they're determined to die like that and end up in hell. I think if somebody brought me the good news, I'd want to change my life, especially if I was hit with a warning like this, should not perish. If you believe, you won't perish. Think of that. That boy gets up in the Middle East in Israel. He writes a letter to his parents and says, Dear Mom and Dad, today 
I'm going to give my life as a martyr. I hope this brings glory to Islam and honor to our family name. He sets the pen down. He reads that Quran a little bit more. Prepares his heart and his mind for that mission. He gets up, puts that green bandana around his head, puts a bomb vest on. He's getting himself mentally prepared. He's knowing he's going to go out and take somebody's life. This is going to be all in the will of Allah. Pretty soon, he's going to die in the pathway of Allah. That man comes in, gives him his assignment. Say, you're to go to such and such street, such and such block, and you're going to get on the bus there, and you're going to blow yourself up, and you're going to kill as many of them dirty rascal Jews that you possibly can. That would be the language they'll use. Sure enough, he puts that overcoat on. might be in the wintertime. Stands at that bus stop. He's being cordial. You know, good morning, shalom, talking to people, you know, all that. And there's a grandma there. She's getting ready to go to her job. Soldiers getting ready to go back to work. Kids catching the bus to go to school. Moms and dads talking to one another. They all get on the bus. How many conversations going back and forth? The two elderly ladies and men are talking to one another. How's your family doing? How are the grandkids doing? I hadn't seen your, your great-grandchild in so long. How's he getting along these days? Is he growing? Has he started walking yet? And I mean the teenagers on the bus are talking to one another about school. Some of the soldiers going back talking about their assignments up near Tiberias or somewhere down in the southern part of Israel. And they're not paying attention to the young man that's just sitting there with the big overcoat on looking out the window. People getting on the bus and off the bus, on the bus and off the bus. But at a certain place, that man jumps up and he shouts, Allahu Akbar, God is greater. And when he shouts that, he hits a button. People are surprised. They suddenly see a ball of fire. That bus comes up off that ground about six feet. Pretty soon, shrapnel, bone fragments and blood and skin going in different directions. Screams from people outside that saw everything taking place. First responders come on the scene and they're trying to figure out what goes with what, what foot goes to what leg, what hand goes to what arm, trying to figure out what hip bone goes to that. And they're trying to put the pieces of clothing back together, looking for a detonator device to see how this thing came to pass. And a half mile or a mile away on the top of a building somewhere, there's somebody with a camera videotaping it all to show it to the next generation of suicide bombers. I'm telling you, folks, when that man jumped up and said, Allahu Akbar, he honestly believed in the next moment he'd draw his breath in a world where there would be virgins that would feed him. But this scripture says in John 3.16, Whosoever believed in him should not perish. That man, that woman, perished and gave their life like that. The greatest peril to live in this world and not believe in Jesus Christ, but finally but have everlasting life. There's your greatest possession in the word have, and then everlasting life, there's the greatest reward. I hope you possess eternal life. I hope you're possessed of eternal life. I hope you experience the great reward and share the reward with other people. Everybody likes rewards. You find out somebody's a killer, you call the hotline, turn it in, there's a reward, $10,000. Folks are happy. Did my service. But have you ever thought about one day you're going to stand before God and you're going to receive a crown? James talks about a crown of life for those that endure to the end. Peter talks about an elder crown for those that serve faithfully. 
Jesus talks about crowns in the book of Revelation. All of us are going to receive a reward. It may seem difficult. You may face a lot of challenges and tasks right now. But there's eternal life on the other side. That presbyter over in Kenya laid his head on that pillow expecting the next morning to wake up and talk to Bishop Karani on the phone and to have me and him at his church and probably having tea at his house that night. He stepped outside on that front porch to try to figure out what the ruckus was out there in the yard and met a bullet, fell over dead. Time that body hit the ground, he was dead. But I'm telling you, before his body grew cold, he was in the presence of God because of eternal life. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. He died, and I couldn't help but thinking when we first heard about it, it could have just as easily been me or the bishop had we been there in that man's house staying. Had we climbed up in that pulpit to preach and somebody came along and shot us. But whatever it is, one thing I do know is that one person died then, another person will die tomorrow. If you're going to do this, you have to deal with the perils. That's why the reward is so great. So great. Because on the other side of your last breath is eternal life. We'll never die. A million years from now. We'll still be serving God. Think about that. Still be serving God in heaven. Won't it be nice to know that when you get over there, there are no torn meniscus. Over there, there are no headaches. Over there, there are no problems or anything like that. It's going to be nice to be in a place where you don't have to practice nursing. It's going to be good to be in a place where, where, where pastor won't have to worry about whether or not he preached too long. I can chase you down after a thousand years and I can say, and just sit on down here. Let me tell you about it for a little while. And a, and a thousand years later, I'm just not getting to Exodus as I share the word with him. Eternal life, unending life, uncreated life in the presence of God. Let's stand tonight. I tell you, folks, we serve a wonderful God, greatest God. Greatest lover, greatest object of his affection being this world, the greatest giver gave the greatest gift, the greatest sacrifice. He provided for us a great warning, the greatest peril, and then, of course, the greatest possession, the greatest reward. I do believe everybody needs to know about this wonderful Christ, don't you think so? I'm telling you, it's worth it all to tell somebody and not be ashamed of what we believe. Because one day it could be you persecuted. For what you believe. But hold on to God. And don't be intimidated. Come on let's lift our hands toward heaven. Father tonight we say again. That we love you. This day is Sunday. But it's the Lord's day. And because it belongs to you Father. That's why we're here this evening. Worshiping you and praising you. Your anointing means everything to us because it breaks and destroys every yoke. Your love means everything to us because it's unfailing. You love us unconditionally. You loved us before we ever loved you. And we thank you for being the first one to make that initial step towards us, God, to embrace us. Thank you for forgiving us of all of our iniquity. Thank you for loving us even when we've been selfish, somewhat ungrateful, yet you've cared for us and stood by us and been right there as an ever, ever, ever uh, present presence in our home.
Father, tonight we know as we depart from this place, but never from your presence, you are strong and you're on our side. We love you. In Jesus' mighty name, and everyone said, Amen, Amen.